Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. As you know, we get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture. I've got a great show for you today because i got two awesome guests, and this is an industry that you don't think a lot about. I mean, you think about ag and the industry, and we always call it the business of food, fuel, and fiber. Well, let's talk about that because I've never had on anyone from the timber and lumber industry, and I just spoke today to the Indian Hardwood Lumberman's Association. And I said, hey guys, would you please join me for a podcast so we can explain why timber and lumber is a big part of the agricultural equation. You know, I'm a farm guy. I own 280 acres. About 60 of it is timber. I've actually managed it. I've got a forestry consultant. I've sold timber off it. So it's a it's a part of my mix, but probably you don't think about it. If you're a grow crop farmer, a cranberry bogger, or a, a cotton producer, you probably don't think so much about it. So with me today are Ray Moistner. He's the executive director of IHLA, the Indiana Hardwood Lumberman Association, and Brett Franklin. He's the elected president of IHLA, and he runs a company called Tri-State Timber. Ray Moistner. Welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Would you do me a favor and tell me what you do and tell me about the tell me about IHLA? Good morning, Damien. We're happy to be the first uh, of the patient farmers uh, to appear on your show. Um, IHLA is a trade association that's been around since 1898. We're here today in Indianapolis celebrating our 122nd annual convention. And uh, as you mentioned, not only are we a part of Indiana agriculture, but we found out back in 2004, we're the largest part of Indiana agriculture in terms of jobs, wages, and economic impact. We are bigger than corn, soy, pork, and poultry combined. Now, that's going to surprise a whole bunch of people. I mean, I'm an Indiana farm guy, and uh, some of the people listening to this, they might be, you know, because we get listeners from all over, you know, Texas, whatever. And there's a lot of people are going to say, well, I know Indiana's the I state, you know, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, you always hear about the corn planting progress. And if you told the average person that there's more dollars in the lumber industry than there are in the corn industry in Indiana, that would probably be a big shock to them. It would be, and we've spent a better part of the last decade and a half trying to uh, convince not only um, our own members, but the, uh, the administration in Indiana and the legislature in Indiana and the citizenry of Indiana that we are indeed not only part of agriculture, but a big part of agriculture. In doing my research for this presentation, I dug up that uh, you've, you've done the thing, you've done the smart thing from a public relations standpoint. You make uh, your message about business and how vital it is to this state. And you've pointed out that it's got an economic impact of over $10 billion. It's not $10 billion worth of sticks. It's $10 billion with everything. Kind of tell me what there is besides the tree. We grow a tree and then what happens? You need to think of it as a vertically integrated industry and it starts it starts with the landowner. 95% of the timber that feeds this state's largest in, uh, agricultural industry comes from private landowners who own over 95% of the of the timber uh, in the state of Indiana. So the industry itself and the economic impact starts at the landowner level when they sell their trees. You need a logger to come in and, and harvest those trees and sell them to a sawmill or a veneer mill. Uh, that's called the primary part of our industry, primary manufacturing. Once the sawmill or veneer mill cuts the 
timber into lumber or veneer, then it gets sold again, hopefully here in Indiana, to a secondary manufacturing processor. And we're talking about flooring plants, cabinets, furniture, all the things that are made out of lumber and veneer. That's secondary. That's secondary. Okay. So when you take this... By the uh, way, to the person listening to this that says, hey, wait a minute, I don't know what veneer is. Let's kick it over here to Brett since he's in the timber business. You got you haven't been on the podcast yet, so go ahead. First off, Brett, welcome. Thank you. And put that microphone up to your mouth so people can hear you say thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, we're going to kick it back to Ray because he's going to tell us about it. But real quickly, define veneer because people say, wait a minute, aren't those the things you put on your teeth? No, exactly. They take the log in. It's boiled. Um softened then it's um taken to a, a knife and it's actually sliced to a, on white oak say a 40th of an inch walnut maybe a 60th to an 80th of an inch and then it's used um for a veneer to be put on on a plywood surface okay so we take really really good wood like say walnut and we just slice a little teeny bit of it off of it uh and we then put it coat it over a piece of cheap pine and it makes it look like it's beautiful that's what veneer does right Yes, and you get so much more production out of doing it that way. Yeah, instead of making a whole piece of furniture out of it, we just use cheap pine plywood to make the piece of furniture, then we coated it. So it's uh, it's like an Earl Scheib paint job, but it's a little nicer, right? <laughs> Correct, All to right. a certain extent. Back to Ray. Primary, uh, primary is the growth like me. I've got trees on my farm, and then I have a guy come out and mark them uh, for harvest and get it, it puts out bids, and then a logging company comes and buys them and logs them, and then they go to a sawmill. That's still primary. Secondary, we made them into veneer or what? Lumber. Okay, and then tell me about tertiary. Tertiary is everything else that might not... Uh, be incorporated. It could include pallets. It could include industrial uses such as railroad ties, crane mats. It could be the guy that has the local framing shop uh, down the street uh, that's making picture frames uh, that you're going to put up on your wall. Okay, so $10 billion, but since you're an Indiana guy, you know those numbers. This is also really important in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Kentucky and other states like that where you don't think of, uh, okay, yeah, they grow corn there or they milk cows there. Same probably the situation in those states. They probably have a bigger economic impact from the lumber industry than they do from many of the agricultural, traditional agricultural uh, industries. Absolutely. And I grew up in and around a big city of Indianapolis. Um, but one of the reasons that it doesn't get quite the, uh, the recognition it should is because in, in most cases, whether it's Pennsylvania, Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, we're a rural based business. And we're made up of um, um, a small town people who aren't used to, to banging their beating their chest and banging the drum and, and self promoting themselves. Most uh, Hoosiers are humble, hardworking uh, business people that just want to get up and go to work and prefer the solitude of the woods over uh, self-promotion. The business of the lumber also, in one of your releases and when I was doing my research, I think that it said that uh, the, the 70,000 jobs here in our home state of Indiana are attributed to or affiliated with the uh, lumber industry. And I thought I saw somewhere about median income. Uh, you're talking about pretty good money that's made in this industry, whether it maybe not necessarily the person cutting the trees down, but that's even a decent job. You're talking about uh, people making money doing other stuff. 
Yeah, it's a, again, one of the well-kept secrets. And the jobs in our industry, another misnomer, uh, it's not just foresters and people that go out there and, and cut down trees. Uh, our jobs range from those types of folks that are boots on the ground to the, to the CFO of a Fortune 500 uh, furniture company, such as Kimball or Master Brand Cabinets, uh, or, you know, companies like that and right here in Indiana, here? Batesville Casket. Sure, absolutely. We, um, we make a lot of reach. caskets. We make a lot of caskets here in Indiana, and yeah. that uh, they have a component of our, our hardwood tunnel lumber right there we get you from birth to death that's perfect all right brett give it to me what does tri-state timber do tri-state timber is a a timber buying logging company Um, we have sawmills we specialize in staves for bourbon and wine barrels and uh, which has to be a good business right now the bourbon craze has been probably going strong for what a little over a decade yes about 10 years and so you've been selling the heck out of these uh, staves for barrels Yes, and what that's happens? all so white oak. So it's a piece of wood. You you don't you buy that. You buy a piece of white oak. Tell me, take me from there. So basically, your timber, usually your veneer, is your highest quality part of your tree, and then your next log is going to drop down to a stave category, and then from there it's going to go drop down to a quarter sawn lumber category. So there's gradations. One white oak tree is not the same as another white oak tree. Tell me about that. You got the veneer quality. I know that when we did my logging, one tree on my property was 10% of the value of all the harvest. 600 trees were harvested. One tree was 10% of the value because it was a veneer quality white oak. So we talked about how we what we do with veneer. How do I know when I'm standing on the ground what's veneer quality? Well, we're looking for a, a four-side clean log. Um, clean, and, meaning I went out there with a brush no, and No limbs, it. no defects on the tree and so most people are always saying oh wow i've got a tree that's a hundred foot tall and there's no limbs well that's not always the case you know all trees branch out as they're growing and there's blemishes on them and internally there's blemishes on them but usually the knots or uh what would be another blemish besides uh uh, oh someone shot a gun into it somebody went out there 50 years ago and put a uh, a fence post next to it and it grew in there is that what i'm thinking Yes, there's all kinds of variables that um, could fall into the categories. So we're looking visually. We can't see inside the tree when it's standing. So visually, we walk around and and we measure the length and the diameter, and we look at it visually to see if we see any um, imperfections on the tree. So from that that perspective, we look at that, and we just have to assume that the quality of wood um, pertaining on the soil quality and where the tree is growing um, in the forest and and its surroundings of of what kind of a value we want to put on that but it's just like a vehicle or cars you you get you know everybody thinks oh it's a white oak it's worth so much or you hear a walnut then it's worth so much well you have your Volkswagen to your Cadillac brands and so you have to actually look at the tree to be able to figure so the one value. white oak isn't the same as the next so we got a veneer quality that's going to be worth a lot of money then you said the second the second gradation down from that is um, your stave quality. And that means they go to make barrels. Yes, and and on a stave board that they make the barrels out of has to be perfectly clean. It can't have any defects or cracks because your liquid will leak out of it. Got it. So you have to, so basically we're making small components that are perfectly clean. So we have to cut a lot of defects out. And so there's usually quite a, a yield loss to make your stave log, but the price um, for the staves um, market has been very the high. Stuff for the stuff that you decade. cut out that's not then, where, where does it go? Does it go to sawdust? It goes into it byproducts go? um, for mulch, 
Um, some some are able to make some small quantity of flooring out of the side products and, and then a sawdust product. But okay. 100% of it's all used. Your company does a lot of staves. And then where do these go? Do they go to Kentucky to make bourbon? Yeah, different companies from Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, um, the, the whole bourbon industry and wine industry. Got it. And then do you sell stuff over internationally? Uh, we have in the past. Okay. So you mostly do that. What else do you guys do? Um, we do forest management. We have three um, Purdue forest graduates that work for us full time. And um, so we go in and we do, we'll do timber stand improvement. Um, and uh, and then they, they also mark our timber jobs for our harvests. All right. So back to Ray. We know that this is a $10 billion economic driver, and you guys did something really smart in 2019. And one of the things that anybody that listens to the Business of Agriculture podcast knows, I talk a lot about being uh, progressive, being about reinvention, being business oriented, uh, going out there and, and, and being a promoter. You guys came up with a strategy with the, in conjunction with the Lieutenant Governor and the State Department of Agriculture and the Department of Natural Resources. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I think it's important to to first uh, point out the fact that until 2004, Indiana did not have a State Department of Agriculture. We were either the 49th or the 50th state to get one. Isn't that remarkable? If you can imagine that. This is an agricultural state, and until 15 or 16 years ago, we didn't even have a State Department of Agriculture. And today we do, and and today, in fact, our director... Uh, was here at your conference, so he understands and and shows support for your industry. You guys teamed up uh, with the DNR, with the Department of Agriculture, and as a trade group, which I think is a good model. The corn people, the soybean people, the dairy people, the pork people, the poultry people, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing, economic growth. Right, and and so this State Department of Agriculture is still somewhat in its infancy, um, it came to us around 2017, and actually it was on the heels of the, the first ever strategy that they did for a commodity group, which was the Indiana Dairy Strategy. And at the time, uh, it was realized that Indiana was dumping about 4 million pounds um, of milk per day. That's milk that's being processed here in Indiana, or made here, yeah, created all, here in Indiana. the hard work of the production, and then we just... Sold out of state because there wasn't enough production here capacity in Indiana to to accommodate all the milk that was being produced. So you're going to either have a situation where dairy farmers are going to have to reduce the size of their herds and produce less or send it somewhere else to capture the economic value of the processing. Oh, but there's one thing that I know from being a dairy farm kid. You don't ever go backwards in production because, by golly, when you're a farmer, all you think about is more. More pounds, more bushels, more <laughs> more gallons, right? So they, right. they said we better just just learn how to promote this stuff and figure out a way to process and add value here versus uh, dumping it on the market and losing losing the value. Yeah, they took a look at the whole industry. They came up with a real quick marketing plan. They had the aha moment that, hey, we're dumping all this milk. So it was a little bit easier than the hardwood strategy. But the important thing was within 18 months, if you can believe that, within 18 months of the rolling out of the dairy strategy, Walmart opened its first ever dairy processing facility just south of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I think it was Archie. Daniel Midland uh, or, uh, opened a, um, a powdered milk processing facility somewhere up near Elkhart. Prairie Farms relocated a, a processing facility from Illinois to Indiana. And all of a sudden, boom, you've got the opposite problem where now farmers can look at increasing the size of their their herds and so forth. Yeah, and so of course, the, the dairy people, uh, some of them are still squawking that somehow Walmart has hurt them. And I say, well, it is still a global marketplace and we still have a lot of milk going around. But the good news is we are at least getting some of the value added that there's pretty processing happening here versus it going somewhere else. 
Absolutely. And you're so, wanting to do the same thing with timber. Yeah. And so on the heels of that, uh, somebody at ISDA in a, in a little meeting we had right after this convention with ISDA said, hey, why don't we make hardwoods the uh, the second strategy that we roll out in the state? After all, it's one of our state's oldest industry. The only industry in the state of Indiana depicted on the, the state seal. Yeah, we got a, a, a person, that, in case you've not seen it, dear listener, log on or go uh, go find it. The state of Indiana uh, became a state in 1816. And our logo, we got a buffalo jumping over a log with a, a guy just chopped down. And what I think they're really saying is, yep, you came here. It was a swampy, boggy mess. Uh, we had to we had to cut down these trees. And then we had buffaloes. We had to chase after them. It's literally a hell of a bad existence 200 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, but it, somehow it all worked out in the industry, uh, as resilient as it is, it survived. And maybe that's not the best image we want on our state seal, but uh, well, there it, it, it works. So you guys said, okay, we got to come up with a strategy. And then your strategy is a three-pronged approach. It's, uh, and you can tell me about that, but it's education, it's, uh, it's business. What are the three prongs on this? Uh, uh, business education and public awareness. And um, the education part, I, mean, I told you a few minutes ago that the, um, the industry relies on private landowners to supply over 95% of the, in, the timber. Well, there's over 90,000 private landowners in Indiana that own 10 acres of forest or more. And uh, we found out during the, the discovery part of this strategy that 80% of those landowners, 80% of them don't understand the timber on their property, what it can do. Uh, they they all have different purposes. They all have different reasons for having the timber. It might be a windbreak for crops. It might be a place of solitude to go recreate or hunt or just go out and for a walk in the woods. Uh, but they don't understand what timber management is uh, for whatever purpose their their end goal is. And so there's a big educational opportunity yeah, there. Yeah, there's an educational opportunity. And, you know, the stories abound in my part of the world that, uh, you know, the poor old widow, uh, uh, she gets the, someone bangs on the door and says, "Well, you know, Mrs. 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 Farmer Brown, you know, you've you've got uh, you've got thirty acres of woods back there. You know, I might be able to give you as much as ten thousand dollars for some trees out of that woods. And the truth is, there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of trees that uh, that come out of there. So um, there, there's those stories that abound in, in the farm country where I'm from. Uh, but it would do it would do well to educate these people that this is actually a resource. It's an asset. It's it's an asset that also can be managed for long term growth of income." Right, and that's a big part of our goal is to educate not only those landowners, but school children that are getting fed the wrong messages, the people that teach those skill, the school children, and just members of the general public who are otherwise well-meaning but could be led by, uh, by other people's uh, agendas into thinking that cutting a tree is somehow bad. Yeah, and we're going to get into that later on about the, uh, the, the, uh, the organizations that do that. So education, business. Talk about the business. Uh, the business side of it, there's there's opportunity. We we still, as we said earlier, we want to capture as much of the value of that log as we can. And uh, whether it's a primary industry, the secondary industry, there's plenty of uses for the wood right here in Indiana and, and plenty of places to manufacture it. And some of the things we didn't mention, you know, there's a, there's a big animal bedding um, industry down there that relies on some of the residuals. Brett mentioned 100% of the tree gets gets utilized. By the way, that's an important thing that we would talk about. We're utilizing a resource, we're managing a resource, but also we don't waste this stuff. We're not uh, we're not like in Brazil where we just bulldoze out and, and slice and burn and then go out to plant crops and and do that. We're when we take trees out, we use every part of it. Yeah, most of our members are fifth and sixth generation, sometimes family-owned businesses, and just common sense would tell you they're not. There's absolutely no reason for them to look at cutting themselves out of out of their future and out of uh, out of the business. That Three-pronged approach: education, business, and 
uh, public relations. Okay. And the public relations is done by you. Getting the message out. And we've got some really, really uh, cool initiatives coming up here to address that, too, including putting a, a 40-foot behemoth of an educational vehicle out on the road. So if we can't take the forest to the kids, we're going to—if we can't take bring the kids to the forest, we're going to take the forest to the kids. It's going to be a wood bus. It's going to be the Indiana Woods on Wheels. It's going to be high tech. It's going to be cool. You're going to, our members are going to be proud to see it rolling down the road and coming to their communities and school kids and, and, and people that attend the state fair and people that are in the, at the county fair or people that are at the local maple syrup festival. They're all going to get a big wow factor come this summer when we, when we roll this baby out. Brett, you run this company. You've got three people that are out doing timber stand improvement. Tell me what timber stand improvement is because I know, but my listeners probably don't. I've done it on my own woods with my consulting forester. What's timber stand improvement? Why do I need to do it? Well, we have a big problem with invasive species now. Um, I I believe Bradford pear is probably our biggest invasive species from the the birds traveling the seeds through. So Bradford pear is a tree that was made for, designed to be for landscaping. So every every suburban home in Carmel has one in the front yard because they grow fast. They keep their leaves uh, for a long time, so they're shady even into fall and uh, early in spring. And they also aren't worth a damn for an actual timber forest, right? Correct. Okay, so it's so like people that are listening to this right now are saying, wait a minute, this is kind of like we have mare's tail in our soybeans, and it's an invasive species, and, and we have a hard time killing it. Correct. And um, open fields that aren't, aren't regularly taken care of anymore and stuff, these trees grow extremely fast, and so it's, it's a big problem, and it's drowning out our oaks and our hickories and, and maples and poplars and, and our trees that are, that are productive crop trees are not able to to get a start well so. since you just said that uh, if i'm gonna if i've got this uh, woods and i want to do the right thing i'm going to sign up for timber stand improvement with uh, the united states department of agriculture because they'll kind of even do some cost assist and then i come to you and then i say what do i need to do and you're going to send out these consulting foresters and what are they going to do they're going to walk through your woods and evaluate what what your situation on your woods is actually um taking place and then from there they will figure a price cost um if there's government assistance, there is. If not, the landowner will have that cost, and they will go in and, and, and do the work. And okay, perform. what's the work? What are we doing? Um, we going out and we going out and planting trees. We we digging holes. I mean, come on, what are we doing out there, Brett? Well, a little bit of all. all um, right. You know, you're you're planting trees. Um, you know, Indiana, we're we're planting three to one that's taken out every year. Um, um, there's grapevine um, cutting before the harvest. Um, you're going in dealing with the invasive species. Sometimes you're you're spraying to kill, and um, sometimes you're cutting um, to remove, um, girdling the undesirable trees that are taking up space that um, are dead and dying. Um, so there's there's a, a vast amount t- to doing your timber stand improvement. All right. So you got that side of your business. You've got the uh, processing. You actually have a sawmill. Do I do I go to your place and there's a there's a bunch of saws? I mean, does it look like the Waltons on Walton Mountain? What do we got going on at your facility? Um, we have a log yard where we, we export, um, we have, we have a mill that custom saws for us right down the street from there. There's saws in there, resaw in there. Um, one circle, one's band. Um, the log, log is taken in, the bark is removed off of it through a debarker. And then it's gone through a process where, um, we're taking the slab, squaring the log up and then creating lumber for furniture grade lumber uh, and flooring and, and different products. Okay. Your customers. Our customers are worldwide. So, um, somebody that makes barrels, 
Yeah, we have customers make barrels. So it goes from you, it goes from the farm to your place uh, to a barrel maker to a bourbon maker. Right. It'll go from the stave mill, which actually cuts the components, and then, then from there it goes to a cooperage, which actually assembles the barrels, puts the rings on it, and then from there, some of them own their own distilleries, some some don't, and they just resell the barrel, and the other ones actually fill the barrel, store them, and, and then um, bottle them. Money. How much How much money is in a, a log? And I know that you're going to say, oh, it depends, but you know, you're trying to manage for walnut and oaks and cherry what are you managing for and what's the money look like? You know, it varies again, like I, I mentioned earlier about the car scenario, but you know, you can have a $50 tree, you can have a $10,000 tree or more. So there's a big difference on the quality of trees. So you can't just say, oh, all my trees are worth 10000 You know, there's there's a lot of trees that aren't worth that much, I but there's markets for different the farm species. Off, when I bought the farm off my family, I think that they were convinced that there was a lot of $10,000 trees. In fact, I think every 40 feet there was a $10,000 tree. I'm pretty sure that's the way it went. All right. So, <laughs> well, and your best thing to do is do your homework, get references, and get bids on your timber. It's it's a competitive business. There's a lot of companies out there like ours, and, and we're more than willing to turn in a bid and give you a price on your timber. And, and so, get professional help, get your trees marked, and make sure everybody's bidding on the the exact same trees. And, and do your homework. If I'm managing my my forest land as I am, uh, I'm I'm looking at uh, the horizon. You know, I've got I did a harvest. 12 years ago and i can do that again when um depending on the growth rate of your um forest but you you can have a harvest every 10 to 15 years if it's managed right okay biggest problem you have as an industry and as a business i think it's probably the conflict industry this is a term that ray came up with but what's your challenge what challenges you every day what's the struggle you face with your business that Cutting a tree is bad. So the perception. Perception is a, a big part of what we deal with. We have activist groups that um, lobby, bring in a lot of money against us. Um, they need a villain, and so we're an easy target. All right, Ray, you talked about the conflict industry. You and I both uh, had this discussion because before I spoke to your audience, I know that this is the problem in agriculture. I do something uh, that a lot of ag people don't do. I say, you got to realize this isn't just a cause. This is an industry. These people make money. The Humane Society of the United States has 250 employees, offices in Washington, D.C. This is their fundraising. Fundraising is their job. Their business is appealing to emotions and to an agriculturally illiterate audience and then taking the fundraising. Is that an accurate assessment? I would, I would absolutely agree with a lot of what you just said. Uh, one thing they did maybe a decade ago was they got a little bit smarter, uh, and they stopped sitting in trees. They stopped spiking trees. They stopped some of the ecoterrorism activities that, that actually, in some cases here in Indiana, and I could give you uh, chapter and verse examples, were deadly. Um, and they went from marches, or they went from marches, marches to markets. And so they decided that instead of the coffee shop uh, meetings in Bloomington where they were going to plan their little protests or tree sittings or any other activities they had, why not go to the bigger city where there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, people that want to do good, that want to do good for the environment, that will receive the message. Let's get up to Indianapolis. Let's, let's get yard signs out near the governor's residence. Let's convince people that this is bad. Why are we destroying our state forests? Uh, why, and, and so we had to, um, we had to 
to we, no longer would it work. We used to be very effective in the legislature, saying, you know, because they would beat themselves. They'd come down there and they'd just embarrass themselves and they would break rules of decorum, et cetera. So they were fairly easy to defeat. Now they've learned to get the public incensed and behind them and then call the governor and all these things. So what we had to do was take a different mindset to it. We learned lessons from the timber war out west with the spotted owl, where you could no longer just point the finger and say, oh, they're just environmental wackos, because now you're in a, in a backhanded way insulting your neighbor down the street who's chosen to who's align bought, with who's them. Who's bought into the argument. Yeah. So the, the extreme fringe has done a very effective job as what you're telling me and this is what we battle with it's whether it's a hog farm or a corn corn processing plant or whatever the fringe is still a very small percentage but they learned to make it look like they are a m- bigger market group by like you said grabbing the suburbanites with yeah. si- yard signs but still they have no expertise so they come and they try to tell the division of forestry in indiana with 30 degree foresters 500 years of cumulative experience in forest management hands-on uh how to do their job even though not a single officer director or member of their group has any forestry degree whatsoever they get 200 scientists from academic institutions in indiana to sign a letter to the governor telling them what's wrong with our forest management not one single one of those scientists uh, had a degree in forestry or teaches a forestry class nor were there a single signature from purdue university which has the only forestry school in the state so a lot of it it's a shell game um it's getting more and more exposed for what they are and they've lost some credibility by us challenging their message do we lose or do we win and how do we win well that's a great question because um let's look at the other side sometimes they win by losing if they lose a bill in the state house yeah they they, they can can rally the troops and they can say we're getting screwed again give us more money send more money um, you, you know, dear listeners, uh, it's the same way when a, a poultry production facility gets permitted. Then they can run and say, see, we're trying to fight this, and they just continue to be big ag and, and paying off big government, and they, that's the, the angle they take, and then they yeah. use it for, to spike the fundraising. We're so close. We're so close. Send us more money. We'll get over the edge. <clears throat> what, about, uh, what about the reality of uh, the, the woods? I mean, you know, in California, uh, it's been <laughs> – a number of forestry actual people that are degreed foresters say we wouldn't have these forestry uh, issues and fires if we were allowed to actually manage that. Uh, is that true? It's a pretty simple equation. When a tree gets old, uh, it does a number of things. One is it stops photosynthesis, which actually brings uh, stores carbon inside a tree when it's growing by by pulling in the carbon dioxide and putting good oxygen out into the air. When a tree starts to die or decay or just become old, it, the opposite happens. It starts uh, it, it, taking in oxygen and putting out carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. And on top of that, uh, when you go buy a rick of firewood to throw in your fireplace, you're not going to use it as soon as you buy it. You need to let it season and you need to let it age. So these dead and dying trees that they refuse to let go out in California and Colorado. Seasoned and aged firewood. It's no, it's kindling. It's a, there's no, there's no uh, great mystery to why California and, and, and Colorado and places like that burn all summer. They have a huge fuel load yeah, out there. And, and it's the, it's really ridiculous that the environmentalists uh, that are against taking the tree then also uh, don't equate, they've never made the connection that the reason the, the places are burning is because we didn't, we weren't allowed to take the tree because you protested logging and now you're protesting the fires and et cetera, et cetera. But again, it's fundraising also. Uh, they can catch it on. They can catch it on both ends. 
Uh, okay, moving forward, what do we need to know? I'm excited about the business. 4.9 million acres here in, in Indiana, and, and I've read this before, that there's more acres of trees east of the river, east of the Mississippi, than there than there were 100 years ago because we used to clear everything to farm it. So there's going to be more forest land moving forward than there than there was, I think, and, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah, we just need to keep the pendulum swinging back towards us. You've seen it in some areas already. Remember when you used to go to the grocery store and you would almost get a look of scorn when you chose paper over plastic? Now they're getting rid of the plastic. The the landfills are filling up. The whales are choking. It's starting to come back to everybody starting to understand that wood is the only renewable resource out there that's grown naturally through the sun and photosynthesis, doesn't require a lot of energy in its manufacture like steel or aluminum does. People are starting to understand that it's not only great for the Indiana economy, it's great for the Indiana environment hardwood floors are natural they're beautiful uh you know versus linoleum so we're going to see more wood consumption i mean in your marketplace you have right we hope so there's a lot of trends out there uh you know whether it's bamboo flooring or luxury vinyl flooring there's a lot of substitute materials but what i find the most curious of all damien is what do they do with these substitute materials when they try to sell them to you? What do they make them look like? They make them all look like wood because everybody wants that wood look. So you can have the real deal at the same price or better and be doing much better for the environment when you choose wood. Brett, where's your business going? Tell me where things are going. The business that you're in, where's it going? You've been in it your whole life. Definitely our trends on the market are changing. So the competition level, when you go to the big box stores, you're, you're getting the vinyl that looks like wood. Um, the younger generation buy into that. I, the price, our, pro, our products real, our products not any more expensive than the new products, but all they hear is that they're helping the environment by not using ours. But at some point, the other product wears out, and, and what do you do with it? Well, vinyl is made out of uh, petroleum-based products, so I think that you can win the environmental angle eventually, and the natural wins out. You know, we we have all natural beef, and we have uh, all that, so I think you'll win on that. Where else? Uh, Bourbon's hot. Furniture. We're going to continue to see more use of that? You look at uh, companies like IKEA, the world's largest wood user. Um, You know, they're right here in Indiana, Um, and and, and those companies, we we need those companies to keep promoting our our hardwood products. You you excited when you look at the future? You've been in this all your life. You excited when you look forward? Are you excited about the wood business? It's getting tough. You know, we're having to change (laughs) what we do. We're we're having to reinvent ourselves. Um, It's definitely something that... um, um, you know, we concentrated on furniture grade lumber before, but you know, then and and cabinetry, and and then the trends came in, and everybody liked painted stock. So you know, everything's white or painted black or gray. Yeah, those are and fa- so those, you don't those, get the those natural. Are consumer, those are consumer fads. Long term, but that does okay. affect our hardwoods. Sure you know, on certain species. You know, cherry was one of our most expensive species, and now you know, poplar's worth more than cherry. Um, so, so it's definitely something that we're having to recreate. But um, it's good to know. I've got a lot of poplar. In consumers of around the world, you know, the the middle class in other countries are becoming something and they they want it may not be as big of square footage homes that we have here in the u.s but um they want our products and 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 we've got to reach out but we've got to make our products we don't need our product to always be an inch and a quarter to start with um you know we need to think outside the box and maybe make it a little bit thinner um, but still use real hardwoods 
Yeah, I think you got a chance to sell a lot more stuff because the consumer in the whole world pretty much is going to have more money. All right, closing thoughts. Ray, what do you got for me? Any closing thoughts? Last thing you need to get out there as the executive director for 30 years you've been with the Indiana Hardwood Lumberman's Association. What do we need to know about wood? Closing thoughts. I'm excited about the future of wood because you're right, Damien, there are fads. There are fads. I used to buy hardwoods because they were a reflection of your personal taste. They were genuinely beautiful. Uh, They had heirloom quality, you know, tables and dining room things got passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now we live in a little bit more of a disposable um, economy where you, you'll go and buy something and throw it away in five years and, and just you know recycle your furniture like that. But what I'm excited about is when you go to a parade of homes, when you go to a homorama, when you go to a home show, when you go tour that big beautiful house out on Geist Reservoir or up in Carmel, what makes it pop? What makes it beautiful? It's still wood. It's always going to be wood. You're still going to always have that wow factor that you're not going to get with any other product. And knowing that we're the most environmentally sustainable and responsible material keeps me excited about what I do every day. I think that's dead on. All right, Brett Franklin, thanks for being on here. Unless you got anything else to say, we're going to wrap it up. Um, Indiana's growing 35% more timber a year than being harvested, where um, trees are being planted three to one of what's harvested. You know, we have a great crop and a great opportunity and buy more wood. All right, I like it. Ray Moisner is the executive director of IHLA, Indian Hardwood Lumber Association. His other, uh, his, his cohort here is the elected president. His name is Brett Franklin. Thanks for being on the business of agriculture. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Damon. All right, till next time, it's the business of agriculture.